Hello and welcome to Regenerative Rising's podcast, Elevating Stories, Activating Change. I am your host, Nisha Mary Paulos, Executive Director of Regenerative Rising. And with me today is Dr. John Schull, a biological psychologist, entrepreneur, human-computer interaction researcher, and digital community organizer. He's a founder of Enable, an online philanthropic community dedicated to creating open-source 3D-printed prosthetics. And more recently, he has been leading an incredible initiative focused on ecosystem restoration through the Ecosystem Restoration Alliance. The Eco-Restoration Alliance embodies a collaboration of scientists, regenerative activists, leaders and communities across the world to bring earth-restoring practices front and center in the climate and biodiversity conversations. Dr. Shaw, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. Um, your work with Enable um, has been really transformative. Um, and I learned that you founded the Ecosystem Rest... Uh, e- e- I keep pronouncing it wrong, I'm sorry. It's Eco-Restoration Alliance with the intent of using the learnings from Enable in harnessing the power of global collective action. Uh, Can you share with our listeners what inspired the shift and the mission behind uh, ERA? Well, the shift was inspired by the fact that um, Enable, this volunteer movement that I started by accident 10 years ago, um, has spread around the world and is thriving in its modest way, um, doing things that governments and businesses and NGOs have failed to do. Um, you know, civilization is rests on the foundation of enterprises, but there are gaps between the enterprises, and in those gaps lie the world's problems, um, both because they're not covered by the business model of the enterprise um, or because the constituents of the government agency don't have enough power or enough voice or because there's not a good um, uh, profit model. For whatever reason, there are gaps. Um, And Enable, in its modest way, managed to organize a global network of people with goodwill and technological ability to communicate and collaborate with each other to do things, in this case, to get prosthetics uh, to people who didn't have them, um, do things that these established enterprises had failed to do. After 10 years of this, the phenomenon of enable became at least as interesting as the phenomenon of 3D printing prosthetics, Uh, the notion that one can, in principle, harness some, in our case, thousands, but potentially millions or billions of people, um, appeal to their interest in making their world a better place and do things that increasingly our governments, our businesses, and our engineers, uh, and our NGOs, and our engineers, are failing to do. Over time, the phenomenon of Enable, of a global network of volunteers doing things that enterprises had failed to do, became at least as interesting and at least as important to me as the delivery of upper limb prosthetics to the small number of people on the planet who could actually benefit from these uh, handmade 3D printed devices. The mother of all problems, the mother of all unsolved problems, is the climate and biodiversity crisis. 
This is one that is not a niche problem that affects all of us. And frankly, our governments, our businesses and our NGOs have failed to solve that one. And so the question became, is there something we can do to make a contribution here? So I began looking into the climate uh, problem. I became aware of a body of literature that suggests that um, the single-minded focus on atmospheric carbon is a, is a dangerous product of business NGO and uh, and in some cases, nonprofit thinking that atmospheric carbon is a real problem. It does produce greenhouse gases. Um, but as much of it has come from the degradation of the natural environment as from the burning of fossil fuels. And more importantly than CO2 is the fact that living carbon plants as maintained and stimulated by animals with whom they are co-adapted, plants are the planetary air conditioning system. Carbon isn't killing anyone. Heat and its consequences is killing a lot of things and it's disrupting a lot of things and it's only going to get worse until we fix the air conditioning system. And it turns out that whereas stopping fossil fuel emissions won't cool the planet for centuries or thousands of years because there's so much carbon already in the oceans that they're going to be outgassing indefinitely. While emissions reduction is a long-term problem to our short-term crisis, ecosystem restoration is a short term solution to our short-term crisis. You can turn bare ground into green ground cover in one season. And as soon as you do that, the green foliage begins aerating the soil, increasing its ability to soak up water. That green foliage pulls that water back out of the soil uses photosynthesis to pack a huge amount of energy that would be heating the surface of the earth, pack it into water vapor. The water vapor rises up, forms clouds, which make shade, which make more rain. And when the water vapor condenses into clouds, a lot of that heat radiates out into space. This is how the air conditioners in our house work. Um, although they spew heat right out into the environment, in this case, the plants spew heat out into the upper atmosphere where much of it goes out into space. This is a literary, literal air conditioning system and it's responsible for a good part of global warming and it's fixable by fixing the air conditioning system, which means restoring the soil, plants, animals, and water, which made our climate in the first place. So that's a big deal. Uh, and then the question is, how do you fix it? It's a big planet. 70% of the planet is already degraded. It's a big planet, but there are 8 billion people on the planet. And so the question is, can we figure out how to mobilize all of the people on the only planet we have and help them understand that they can make their own world cooler, 
more verdant, more food rich, more biodiverse, more informative and more meaningful by taking responsibility for the ground that they stand on. And if everybody did that, <laughs> um, we would have a lot of hands and feet fixing the fundamental problem and fixing the fundamental problem in their own lives, which is that we've become disconnected from nature, nature and we are suffering from it. And so there's the problem statement and the, the origin story. That's how we got here. Now the question is, how do we make this happen? And I have some ideas, you have some ideas, but this is what we have to figure out together, I think. Wow. Yeah, that's just so powerful. And uh, there's so much, such a beautiful, strong message of hope. Um, and I I particularly love that you, uh, it's a really a paradigm shift, the way you are presenting that restoring ecosystems is the short-term solution. It is the achievable solution. Um, and that's so important um, because there is, so much information out there today that's just like pushing people into sort of this linear thinking of and everyone seems to be on this this search to find that one magic solution to eat or grow or build or design or think that can give you some instant results right and and that's the sort of the paradigm shift that we are also um, you know, a lot a lot of people are working towards and, and that's the beauty of what I feel that you have just explained that this is that, but it's not that it's one thing that there's this there's this plethora of things. And um I'm wondering if you'd like to just speak a little bit more to that, the diversity of solutions that this when eight billion people are involved, what what does that bring to the table? Right. Well, it's 8 billion people in untold numbers of different environments. I mean, the amazing thing about our planet is that virtually every inch is covered or has been covered with living things who have evolved to make the most of whatever environment they're in. And so, you know, there are bacteria and plants and animals in the, in the Arctic and in the Antarctic and above ground and underwater. And most of them would not survive in each other's habitat, but each of them has managed how to extract the very best out of the circumstances there and not just extract energy and nutrients, but then to create life and to create nutrients for other creatures who adapt to them. And so then you get an ecosystem that is enriching the planet and supporting more and more biodiversity, more and more life, and more and more of a self-organizing and potentially stable and nurturant climate. But one of the consequences of that is that restoring healthy ecosystems is not a one-size-fits-all system. Restoring healthy ecosystems require that you understand what is the ecosystem, what is the natural collection of plants and animals in that environment, and then figure out how you can restore them. Um, you know, unlike 
the engineers who say, I have a solution, I need to get it everywhere. Um, part of the trick here is that you have to say, nature has a solution. It got it everywhere. We have to figure out how to recreate it. It's not a matter of being uncreative. Um, it's that nature has had so much time and has invested so many lives in parallel to figuring this system out that our own inventions are unlikely to be able to actually solve a problem like this. So that means that the craft of ecosystem restoration requires that you understand the land that you're on and the life that you have, that you are going to be coexisting with. And you have to figure out what went wrong. And, you know, and different things go wrong in different places, but mostly what went wrong is human industrial or civilized agricultural techniques. Um, first, it was tilling the soil, which can increase productivity in the shorthand, but Every time you do it, you rip up the underground connections, the mycorrhizal fungi, and you kill off all sorts of animals that make the larger system work. Living things die. By the way, they break down, they decompose, and they end up in the atmosphere, in, you know, making the greenhouse effect even worse. Um, grazing animals used to be responsible for all of the grasslands, many of the vast habitats all over the world. The grasslands were evolved to support the buffalo and uh, horses and all sorts of large megafauna grazing animals. And the grasslands benefited from these large grazing animals. They would poke holes in the soil, which would become little reservoirs that would capture rain. They would fertilize and enrich the soil with nitrogen and with um, yeah, all of their poop and their droppings. They would be clumped into tight herds by predators and so they would roam in such a way that the plants got nibbled down, not all the way to the ground, but just far enough down that it was now time for the herd to move on to the next fertile area and the plants would get to recover. So that you had these perennial species that every year would increase their root depth, increasing the water holding capacity of the soil and the life generating capacity of the soil. It's an example of a whole ecosystem. When humans started to domesticate these big animals, they also got rid of the predators. They allowed them to range free. They allowed them to um, distribute themselves and grow in number in such a way that they turned grasslands into scrub, into that sort of typical, in the American West, rangeland, but I know in a lot of India, you see bare ground, right? If you see bare ground, something has gone wrong. However, once you understand that story, and this is something we've only discovered in the last, well, 
This is something civilization, modern um, technology has only rediscovered in the last decades. But once you understand the dynamic, if, for example, you take cattle or buffalo or horses and you make sure that they travel in clumps and that they're moved around either by natural predators or by artificial predators like shepherds who will keep them in particular ways or by using fences, they start cultivating the soil and the ground. The ground begins to recover. The bare dirt gets covered with, with grass. It becomes more fertile. And so there's an example where recreating the grazing patterns of the keystone species recreates the entire ecosystem. There are other techniques. Um, if you don't have enough grass to bring in grazing animals, you can do what the megafauna hooves used to do and dig holes in the ground. Those will capture rain and keep it in those little holes until it has time to soak into the ground. In contrast, on bare ground, the rain falls onto bare, hard-packed, non-permeable dirt, and it evaporates. So you can kickstart this project by digging trenches, by looking at the way the rain travels over the landscape and saying, if we put a trench here, it will collect all the water with some depth, it will seep into exposed earth, the exposed the water will seep through the exposed earth and again within a year you start getting greenery and then the greenery increases this, this uh, permeability of the soil and that brings in other plants and other animals who start bringing in other nutrients from other places and it recovers so we've dealt with grasslands we've dealt with desert there are stories to be told about coastal regions you know, used to be every coastline um, in much of the world was, pardon the expression, knee-deep in mangroves. Actually, they were over your head and um, they were knee-deep into the water. Mangroves are, are huge. They are the nursery for all of the baby fish and shrimp and critters that support human economies. Mm, you tear them down and you put up uh, resorts or apartment buildings or beaches and things, and you're greatly reducing the biological capacity of that land to turn energy into, into life and food. So you restore mangroves. You restore mangroves, you discover that the fisheries are recovering. You restore the fisheries, you realize that the huge fish the sharks and the whales have come back dolphins and the sharks and the whales it turns out um when they die these huge creatures carry with them huge amounts of carbon and nutrients to the bottom of the sea there is a vast amount of carbon at the bottom of the sea right now um, in the form of just cool decomposed carbon and when living carbon, some of these same whales, for example, 
go down and feed on the bottom and come up again, they circulate those nutrients. Turns out big animals, whales in particular, play a really big role in maintaining ocean circulation. Also tiny animals play a re really big role. The plankton, um, every day they go down and they go up and they go down and they up and they go up. It's the largest migration in the world and it happens every night. And as they do that, they're again moving huge amounts of water up and down, circulating things and driving the whole economy, driving the whole ecology. But you know, it also drives our ecology. Um, those plankton produce half of the oxygen we breathe. And yet those plankton have been reduced by 70% in the last hundred years or so. So I've gone from mangroves to oceans to plankton, etc. but it all comes back to, for humans, it comes back to what about us? And the answer is we can't afford to let this stuff go away. This stuff is what we are adapted to and what we depend upon. And without oxygen, without rich oceans that are sequestering carbon without becoming acidified, and for that you need living things to produce decomposing bodies rather than just absorb CO2, Without oxygen, without a healthy ocean, we're going to get a planet, which some things will continue to live on, but it's not going to be humans, or it's certainly not going to be as many humans. And we're going to be increasingly living in man-made refugees um, rather than nature-made environments that, you're act that we are actually well-suited to. It's a very diverse planet. It requires a diversity of solutions. But if you come from where the Eco-Restoration Alliance is coming from, there are some general strategies for figuring out how to make things better. And, you know, as I said, it has to do with understanding the richness and the complexity of the biosphere in general and bioregions or ecosystems in particular, and then saying, okay, how do we work with nature, not to impose our model on it, but to learn from nature, what is the proven model that has worked here? And then say, what got broken and how can we fix it? And maybe we fix it just by letting nature run its course. But the interesting thing is that there are methodologies that have been developed in the last 50 or 100 years for accelerating the rewilding of natural habitats so that, so that processes that used to take 200 years, like the transition from bare ground to mature forest, can be done in 50 years. And I'll tell you that story um, in part because it's being uh, adopted in India and part because it's a really good story for everyone to think about. Um, these days, everybody plants trees. 
That's, I wish actually these days everybody plants trees, but it's one of the obvious solutions, except planting trees is not the same as planting ecosystems. A lot of the tree planting is either being done for timber, nothing wrong with timber, but typically they are one species monocultures of timber wood trees like pine And that's not an ecosystem, that's a plantation. And you don't get all of the diversity underground and you don't get nearly as much um, productivity. And we know that because about 40 years ago, a Japanese botanist named Akira Miyawaki discovered that if you take all of the species from a mature forest, and all of the species that were involved in the succession of reaching the mature forest, the initial ground cover, the initial weeds, the shrubs that then grew, the saplings that then shadowed the shrubs, all of those species all together and put them in the kind of soil that there used to be there. And that means you enrich the soil, you make sure that you've got the nutrient mix that all of those co-evolved species were adapted to the trees grow 10 times faster. And that tells me that they are at least 10 times as productive. They're capturing more carbon. They are providing more ecological services. And indeed, they support 30 times the biodiversity. You look at the other plants, the other insects, the other birds and animals who then occupy the mature um, and maturing ecosystem, it's a much richer technique because in addition to the competition between individuals, there is the cooperation across individuals, which is what makes an ecosystem what it is. And through that cooperation, you get a division of labor and you get a complementarity, which means that plants who produce more nitrogen than they need can hand it off to trees that produce more sugar than they need. And there's this whole literal underground economy, which allows all of them to thrive. And in those thriving underground economies and ecologies, there's actually enough abundance for humans to thrive as well. The thriving ecosystems on the planet Eighty percent of them are now and still in control of indigenous people who had worldviews and evolved practices that are consistent with the story I'm telling. But most of the world's population has now been civilized. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about the special effects. Um, and as they are civilized, Civilization is breaking down the natural ecosystems, which we actually need to survive. So here we are. So that's my story about the need for specific solutions in specific places based on general principles that are applicable, I would actually say, generally everywhere. Yeah. Wow. I think uh, this is such valuable information and like it's sort of, <laughs> 101 about ecology delivered so beautifully and um thank you that's uh 
I think for for anyone listening in, it's it's a it's a, so much information, and um, it's really kind of on uh, presenting the complexity and the interconnectedness of all of this. That actually, what we're you know, as you were speaking, what really came to me was it it's maybe the 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 work or where what humans have to do for the, this era this upcoming era is everyone has to roll up their sleeves and get into this process of restoration and that has to be um, maybe our mode of uh, employment or livelihood or uh, our means to thriving and I say this because I'm often confronted with this question of like uh what are human beings supposed to do uh, if uh, we're to give all the land into ecosystems uh, back to the ecosystem? And, you know, in a country like um, India, where I am, or any big city in the world, because and most big cities um, are built on some of the most critical landmasses um, of that region, because, you know, that's the whole civilization story again. But so then I, I often... I myself spend a lot of time pondering this question of like, what's the role of human beings into this, um, not just in this in this way of, yes, we are restoring it. And uh, today it has come to a point where we have to and we need to because it's, it's for our own uh, survival even. But yeah. if we step back and we look at this whole idea of stewardship and um, how in the long term and in in the planet long term is thousands of years um what what are the ways in which we can live um and continue to evolve uh, because you know and i'm saying this because i've 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 often been confronted with this question are you asking us to go back to live in a, in, in cave days and it's it's a very um, and I understand sometimes why that question comes up, but I'm also interested to listen how you would answer that, that um, how how do we continue our evolutionary path um, as a species and as civilizations, um, but continue to uphold this right. uh, this living system? When the archaeologists unearth this interview 2,000 years from now, they'll be able to tell you what the actual answer is. But I can give you some, some speculations. I mean, look, let's recognize that these so-called virgin rainforests that still exist in some parts of the Amazon and places in Africa and some parts of India, those have been occupied by indigenous peoples for thousands and thousands of years. They are not human-free environments. Our species, you know, has covered the entire world. And even where we've, um, we've maintained healthy ecosystems, we've done it in collaboration with those healthy ecosystems. Humans adapt and the environment adapts to the humans if you give it a chance. Now, you know, one thing I didn't talk about is that um, giving nature a chance to work with humans is 
really counter to the dominant agricultural techniques of the day, right? The dominant agricultural techniques today <coughs> is to try to industrialize food production. And that means using the best technology we have, the most powerful technology we have, like pesticides and herbicides developed as agents of war in, the, uh, in World War II, to kill off everything but the specific crop that you're declaring you're going to you're going to grow that death based agricultural strategy kills all of the diversity that we were talking about before indigenous people aren't poisoning the rainforest um, they are cultivating the rainforest they're planting more food crops um, more edible trees, perennials, all sorts of things. They're even hunting, but they're hunting in such a way that they don't deplete the population. So, you know, animals can reproduce very quickly unless you wipe them out, which of course is, is, is what we've done. So we need to stop replacing life with... Uh, I'll use the phrase engineered constructs. We need to stop using industrial chemicals and poisons to kill indiscriminately um, living things. We need to stop turning cities into concrete deserts. We probably need to reduce our numbers, but the good news is that as people become better off and educated, birth rates go down. So that's a happy way of thinking about what's it gonna take for humanity to end up um, scaled so it can coexist happily and meaningfully on the planet we have. We're going to have to adopt philosophies and ways of thinking which are not just sustainable, but regenerative. Things like that. So, you know, a thousand or two years ago, one can imagine that there are cities because humans seem to want to work in cities and because cities make things quite efficient. You know, the, the energy footprint, the lowest per capita energy footprint in the world, I have heard, is New York City, a major metropolis. But you're taking lots of people and you're bringing all the infrastructure together and the energy requirements, when you do that right, can be lower. Now, it's not all about energy, but, you know, another example from New York is there are a lot of people. They don't get that much rain in New York. They bring all of the water for the city in from where I am, from upstate New York and from the Hudson Valley. Because there eventually developed a partnership between the urban planners in New York City and 
the farmers and the agriculturalists upstate, they made a deal. They said, we will take New York City money and we will invest it in your schools and your environments and your farms if you make sure that your farming is done in such a way that you have less pesticides and less pollution going into the water and more water going into the rivers, which we will then use for our people, right? So there, there is, of course, a human ecosystem. Now, increasingly, New York, first of all, it's got fewer cars because they've um, added bicycles to the mix. I, I know probably for many of your cities, that's not a big deal, but for us, it's actually quite a big deal. And we're beginning to talk, as I'm sure you are, about green architecture. Um, roofs should be green. They should be gardens. There's just as much, there's actually more surface area in a city per horizontal acre than there is um, in the country. Because you've got all of those buildings and their rooftops cover the same area. You've got all of that street and you've got all of those walls. Well, if all of that were covered with greenery, the temperatures in those cities, which are currently sources of heat islands, although the concrete absorbs heat, the heat radiates, the um, hot air produces a bubble over the city that keeps the rain out, it gets hotter, it gets drier, it gets more unpleasant. If all of that is covered with, with greenery, it'll be 10 degrees centigrade cooler because all of that greenery air conditions the air will be fresher because all of that greenery cleans the air. Um, the rains will be better modulated and gentler because all of that greenery regulates the clouds and the rains. And for that matter, there'll be a lot more inexpensive food in the city because you can actually grow a lot of food in cities using Techniques that are human inventions, but are pretty, um, pretty efficient and pretty effective. And if you've got all of those people in cities, you now get to devote more and more of the planet to people, but also plants and animals who are maintaining the whole system. Well, if you put those kinds of fantasies together with the unanswered question of how many humans can or should, or do we want our planet to support? You can imagine actually um, a pretty nice place to live that gets better and better over time instead of becoming more and more depleted. Uh, we have a member of the Ecosystem Restoration Alliance named John D. Liu. He documented the um, restoration of the Lus Plateau in China, a huge eco-restoration project, huge success. Um, but he says that figuring out how to do what we've been talking about is the great work of our time. And it is, and it is truly great work, right? It's meaningful. It ensures the, um, lives and livelihoods and meaningfulness of our descendants as well as our own lifetimes and it makes us part of something as far as we know unique in the universe and really to be 
to be cherished and admired. If we got with that program, if a large proportion of the 8 billion people on the planet shared that vision and had the opportunity to work with and learn from nature and get the satisfaction of turning degraded land into rich, nurturant, enjoyable, fertile land, those would be good lives for humans, plants, animals, and the fungus among us. I love that you called it a, a happy fantasy because it's, you know, it's really exactly what we need. Um, more imagination of this possible utopia rather than the amount of time and energy gone into like spinning dystopia, which uh, seems to be capturing imaginations uh, <laughs> a lot more. But how do, you know, this new, having this idea, having these visions of of abundance and beauty and coexistence um is really i would think the first step on in in sort of manifesting this world that we want and that we need to strive to work towards and one of my favorite ways of uh putting explaining this idea of a thriving nature inclusive city is I, I i love to call it human habitat rather than just like human settlement because habitat includes everything exactly. else yeah. living and what we consider non-living even um and um on that note i want to take a little bit of a tangent and and uh speak uh about the idea of collective action and movement building because you are a leader of uh, movements and there's so much to learn from that and you know just as we were as you were explaining that if there's 8 billion people and 8 billion you know in different levels of diversity that we're working with and the urgency of this point in time and the you know the the fact that we need to work in in such vast immense ways certainly requires collective action and um so, you know, if we need collective action that supports diversity of opinions, of sciences, of cultures, of systems, uh, and of course of species and ecosystems, uh, this also requires massive devolution of power and decentralization of agency. And I wonder how you see this in practice in your work um, and um, what are the inflection points and how does this collective action evolve into sustainable systems in your wisdom? My wisdom. Um, my wisdom tells me that I don't actually know the answer to that question. I know to ask the question and so do you. Um, and it's the critical question. Um, I think if we need 8 billion people working on the ground, we need 8 million people trying to answer that question. And some of us will figure it out. Um, I'll tell you some of the ways we're trying, some of the methods we're trying. I mean, one obviously is to get the word out, right? This interpretation of, of climate is not the dominant interpretation and it's not the interpretation that's getting billions and trillions of dollars right now. Um, there's too much focus on atmospheric carbon and not enough focus on living carbon. And while atmospheric carbon is a problem, 
if you only solve that problem, we still die. <laughs> right? yeah. So we have to get out this understanding. Um, and we have to get out the message that this is something we actually do know how to address. Um, it's actually pretty remarkable, but you know, the fact is that the natural world cracked this code millions of years ago. Um, it's a working and a workable solution if we don't break it irreparably um, before we learn that we needed to fix it. Then people need to be empowered and encouraged and inspired to do this. Uh, you know, you heard me giving a pep talk saying this is what makes life meaningful. I, I believe that. Um, and I think that there are a lot of people despairing because their lives are not meaningful and their future is bleak. This is a vision that delivers a meaningful life and a brighter future. Um, I find myself, well, I am. I'm, I'm acting like an evangelist, right? This is what... Um, what evangelists say about their worldview. But this particular one, which is a, in some ways a utopian and ev evangelical view, is one which is proven to produce real results, not in the afterlife, <laughs> but in the real world that will be occupied after we're gone by our own descendants if we act in the right way. So there's storytelling, and that is one thing we do. But the other thing we need to do is to help people act on the story. I have one project, which you can visit. Um, it's called Big Map to Save the Future. BigMapToSaveTheFuture.net. It's a website. It looks sort of like Google Earth, except that the pins all over this map, all over the world, including a small, small number, but not enough in India, our ecosystem restoration success stories, demonstrating that all over the world, once people have tried to fix their environments, they have succeeded. I think there should be 8 billion pins on that map. I think everybody who takes responsibility for the ground they stand on, um, I saw a phrase just yesterday, Everyone who stands up for what they stand on should be celebrated, encouraged, rewarded, and made visible to other people who haven't gotten with the program yet. So that's an example of, of a social hack, which I would like to see become part of a global movement, something that will inspire and mobilize and make it as easy as possible for people to say, well, that's really cool. I could do that. I will do that. I want to be there too. The other critical thing that the Eco Restoration Alliance does is we bring together people like you, who I am now inviting to join the Eco Restoration Alliance, and other people who are trying to figure this out. And we give them through town hall meetings, actually, um, every couple of weeks, we get together for a couple of hours and we compare notes. Typically new members introduce themselves, 
old members say, you know, you should talk to so-and-so, et cetera, et cetera. And that brings us to the other major function that we're trying to develop for the Eco-Restoration Alliance. The question in nature and the question for us is, what can we all do together that we can't do individually? That story about Miyawaki forests says that even for plants, there are things they can do together that they don't and can't do individually. So for socio-biological ecosystems, including humans. And so we are trying to find projects and initiatives that can synergize the very impressive and diverse abilities, interests, and networks of our members to do things together to restore healthy ecosystems in a way that we can't do individually, because frankly, we're all, we are already leading the way in trying to do whatever we think we can do. We need to get everyone else to do that. And we need to figure out how we can amplify each other's efforts and take advantage of the synergistic effects of cooperation and collaboration with nature. Wow, that's exciting. Thank you for the invitation. I am uh, I'm on board. All right, um, I'll follow up. <laughs> Absolutely. This is how we do it, folks. Yeah. <laughs> this is how we become collectives. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm just really, um, you know, these these success stories serve to have, you know, it has, first of all, it has so much knowledge to share and learn from, but it also has um, the innate potential to really inspire you and um, to bring people together. And yeah, as you were saying, there are, have, human beings themselves have demonstrated in the past our ability to come together for collective action often it's not for the best of intents and certainly not for the most peaceful ones but still we have it in us to come together and um this this really is this this beautiful opportunity in some way i feel that the earth is presenting us um, as a way to come together, as a way to rediscover our own networks with the earth, as a way to sort of understand this, this incredible living system that we're a part of, that we're, you know, that we're connected to. And while all these shifts are really scary sometimes, and, you know, like there's a lot of people who are um actively suffering from different forms of eco anxiety and literal um physical um you know effects of this um being oppressed by the physical effects of uh, this climate change and um eco instability and i i wonder you know and and you know this idea of that the answer to <laughs> the eco anxiety is to find out what you can do and how can you uh how can you get involved how can you be part of the solution right. um and i and, and i love this call for action that there's something that everyone can do um and you know we're almost close to our time but as we wrap up um is there a message that you would like to leave our listeners with i i think it's it's a fabulous one that you've already given this really tangible way to connect and be part of the movement but as a message and regarding, you know, how can you be part of this movement uh, regardless of wherever you are and whatever you're doing? 
Well, you can certainly visit our website, ecorestorationalliance.org. Um, and you'll find more information and you find ways of getting in touch with, uh, with our members. You can go to bigmaptosavethefuture.org. Those are the off-the-shelf, on-the-net answers that we have. But I think the general question is, each of us has to figure out, once we've heard this message, what we each individually is going to do and how we're going to contribute to a world in which more and more people take responsibility for undoing the mistakes that we have made while we still have a chance. I think young people in particular um, stand at a crossroads. And ironically, which way they go is going to depend on whether they get the memo, whether they see the opportunity, or whether they conclude that the game is over, they've already lost, they've been screwed, so may as well just, just hang in there. Those are two self-fulfilling prophecies. If everyone gets demoralized, the world really will collapse. We're at that point now. If everyone gets inspired, the world really can recover. That's true probably for the next generation. Probably not for two generations. So it really hinges on the young people alive today. They are either going to preside over uh, an epochal disaster or an epical renaissance that will make a difference for all time. Both paths are available right now, and they hinge on how people choose to live their lives. Um, there's a biblical expression where I come from, says, therefore, choose life. I say, choose life, and you do it by understanding that you're a part of it and help making it work the way it evolved to work. Wow, that's just remarkable. And I've literally got chills listening to that message because, yes, that's what it takes. Um, and it's just so powerful to learn from the amount of hope that you carry uh, is inspiring, uh, as is your passion, your dedication, and the vast amount of knowledge that uh, you just shared. Um, and um, I want to just, you know, what really stands out to me that that this goes beyond the prescriptive, that it has a spaciousness for learning, for exploring, for experimenting, and that it brings people together to serve nature and our planet and ourselves. And it's a gentleness and empathy that holds us together while everything else is shifting. Um, so thank you so much uh, well for said. being here today. <laughs> And uh, thank you for sharing your immense wisdom with us. I'm truly grateful and honored. And I look forward to continuing the conversation. Me too. Thank you, uh, Dr. Shaw. Um, It's so exciting uh, to have 
just just leave off with this hope and uh, to the listeners i want to i want you to remember the words uh the the message that you left us with um this is regenerative rising's podcast elevating stories activating change i am your host nisha mary paulos executive director of regenerative rising and with me today is dr john shall a biological psychologist entrepreneur human computer interaction researcher digital community organizer and the founder of eco restoration alliance <music>